Good morning, Outlook family. It is good to see everyone this morning. Wasn't that a great time of worship? I'm so appreciative of our uh, worship team leading us so well. Uh, it was just, yeah, yeah, show them a little appreciation. Nothing wrong with that. Great to be together to worship. So, and, and really, whether you're with us here in the room or you're with us online, we're together. And that's a beautiful thing to be. And we're going to open up God's Word now, something I'm really uh, excited to get the chance to do. As Kate said there at the end of the video, we're wrapping up our summer looking at the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. And in this final passage that we look at this morning, we're going to be tackling some questions like these. How do we deal with a world that is increasingly caustic, seemingly filled with conflict, while at the same time less and less able to handle that conflict? How do we live with people with whom we disagree or even who treat us poorly or selfishly? And more than that, what if how we answer these questions is about more than just getting along with others? But what if how we answer such questions as Jesus' followers is pivotal to how we change the world? What if how we as Jesus' followers, uh, how we approach these things, how we approach those who oppose us or who mistreat us, and the conflict that is inherent in that, what if all of that is far more important and pivotal than we realize? And what if we do this according to Jesus, and doing it according to how Jesus teaches? What if that's not just a nice thing that we can pull off sometimes, but a needed thing if our gospel witness is ever going to really take off in this world? Those are the questions that we bring to this passage and that this passage brings to us. So I, I want to read the whole passage and then we'll move through it thought by thought. We're going to pick up today where Mike Wilkins, our uh, neighborhood outreach minister, left off last week. Great uh, job, Mike, uh, if you were here last week or you caught it online for, what, uh, for the sermon that he brought as we we're moving through Romans 12. I'm going to pick up where he left off in verse 17. Are you ready? Here we go. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is a Jesus follower to do when mistreated or harmed by another person? Well, let's dive in. We begin with this very clear thought. Never pay back evil with more evil. Now, can we all agree this is not the code of the world? Am I right? This is not the way the world works. But it is absolutely the way of Jesus. And it is the revolutionary ethic of his followers. I want to lay next to this passage in Romans words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 and show us this morning that what Paul is writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is absolutely in line with the teaching of our Savior and that they go together. And so 
in the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 specifically in this case, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, this doesn't mean remaining in an abusive relationship or being someone's punching bag. Not at all. But Jesus is getting at something here. It speaks to remaining open in our relationships and even vulnerable in not making our first instinct retaliation. That even in our overall relationships, we should not strike back. That our first instinct need not be to raise our fists when we see that someone has raised theirs toward us. But instead, we can be sure that whatever is happening to us has raised the attention of our Father in heaven and that we belong to Him. It's another way of saying, don't pay back evil for evil. Now, we know from the Old Testament passage of Scripture that Jesus is pointing to here that he's referring to personal injuries between individuals. He's he's talking about our obligations to each other, what life and what love looks like in life with with each other. So we're not talking about societal or institutional injustices here. We're talking about how you and I are to treat each other, even when sometimes we don't treat each other well. Jesus goes on, verse 40, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Jesus is introducing the possibility that just perhaps, rightly or wrongly, someone else's need is more important than your right. Now this is something we've really lost sight of, right, in our society. We are all about claiming and defending and declaring our rights. Now, there's nothing wrong with that inherently until it becomes the main way that we deal with each other. And again, we are to be the people on the earth who rest in the fact that our God can get us a new shirt and a new coat if we really need it, right? So don't stoop to the level, Jesus says, of those who are operating and working to try to live in this world without our glorious and powerful God. Don't keep score the way they do, and certainly don't settle scores as they do. Jesus goes on, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. He's referring here to something that would have been very common in his day, as the listeners would have known exactly what he was talking about. Any Roman soldier, who they were the occupying power of the day could require a Jew to do uh, they to carry their armor and walk with them a mile. Kind of be my caddy for a mile. Here's my stuff. I'm tired. You. Uh, it's kind of like a tax you might have to pay if any Roman soldier asked you to do that. You were obligated to stop what you were doing and walk with them for a mile. Jesus says, try two instead. In other words, do more than is strictly required because your perspective on it has changed. See it instead as an opportunity to serve and support, not an obligation to efficiently fulfill so you can get back to your own agenda. See it differently. Who knows what kind of conversation you might get into when you go that second mile. But Jesus isn't done. 
Give to the one who asks you, he says. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, as you've heard these words of Jesus, if your reaction is, what? And no way. I'm not sure how I really feel about that. And what I do know I feel isn't good, right? You're kicking against what you've just heard Jesus teach. Am I the only one who feels that way when I read this passage? I hope I'm not, okay? But I will say this. I want to encourage you. If you're kicking against this, that means you are human. But I want to encourage you to kick through it. Kick through the discomfort of this teaching. Kick past uh, the way it makes you feel. Keep kicking. Keep wrestling. And I'm telling you, on the other side, you will find something precious that Jesus is providing. Because in these words, man, He is up to something. And can we all agree, Jesus is always up to something. Am I right? So keep wrestling with what He's saying here. Now, when we hear this teaching of Jesus, let's be reminded, these are not laws. These are not prescriptions for exact um, situations you may find yourself in. Not too many of us are literally getting slapped in the face, right? There's a principle here. He's painting a picture of a certain kind of person, how they act, how they react when they're doing life with him. And with a little bit more reflection, we also begin to see he's describing life as Uh, the way God does it as well. Think about it. God goes the extra mile with me. He's patient. I bet he does with you too. He gives me more than I deserve. That's certainly true. And think of Jesus, abused on his way to the cross. He took far more than one slap on one cheek or even both. Jesus is up to something here. He is surgically looking to remove our ego, or at least get it out of the way. He knows what trips me up. He knows what gets in the way of me truly executing love in this world and the things that will wrap me up and get me, get me all kinds of sideways. He's trying to get that out of the way. Trying to give me an egoectomy. Anyone need one of those sometimes? That's what he's trying to do. Because uh, our ego, our need to indulge our anger, one of my favorite authors says, all of us as human beings walk around, we carry our own supply of anger, right? We've got our own supply of ammo, in a sense. It's, it's, it's volatile, it's a little bit dangerous to have it with us, but we do. We carry it around, and what we do with that anger that each of us has is so pivotal, pivotal to our own health, our own well-being, our own spiritual health, our own relationships, and our own witness in the world. And what are we looking to do with that anger? Some of us can sometimes be so filled with anger that we're just looking for something to do with it, right? We've all been there. In our world today, politics has become far too often not a sphere for public service as it's supposed to be, but all about power and, frankly, anger. And those who give themselves over to that end up having an increasingly hard time obeying scriptures such as these. Our modern sense of relationships and how we do life with each other too often becomes about what have you done for me lately? in retaliation over any perceived slight. 
We end up becoming people who want to make a point rather than making a difference. We want to win the argument instead of winning over a friend, winning over a heart. And so Jesus is calling us to break that cycle. He knows the way the world works, and it's working today as it always has, evil for evil, right? Keeping score in its own unique and exhausting way. And Jesus and His Holy Spirit within us wants to instill in us a new reflex. You slap me on the cheek, I don't get ready to slap back and even harder. That begins to die in me and in you. That reflex, that instinct begins to shrivel and something else begins to replace it. Love and compassion and patience and grace and the sense that we belong to God and that that's what matters most. It's not what I deserve or what I think is right, what's coming to me, but what can I give? How can I serve? How can I show love? And in the showing of that love, perhaps end up doing an even greater good. Now, this is important and repeated in the scriptures. It's important to me sometimes as we lay things out like this, that we see that this is, Paul says this, but not just once. Jesus is saying it. We'll also see in a second the Apostle Peter says it. First Thessalonians, um, Paul says this, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. You can easily see how the Holy Spirit is dropping the same thought into Paul as he writes this letter to these Christians in Thessalonica that he uh, wrote to the Romans. But always strive. Someone say always strive. Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And for everyone else. Now see, this isn't niceness. This is a subversion that's meant to change the world. We're going against the grain and the flow of the way the world works. Evil for evil, man, everyone understands that. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says, think, really think about how we treat each other and how, that, how doing that differently can be revolutionary. That it's no small thing. It's not just can we all just get along. It's how you and I can demonstrate love in a world that's beginning to forget what that even looks like. What disagreement can look like. What, 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 how we treat opponents and enemies can even look like. That we can be people who insert love and grace and patience and compassion into that system. It's like a piece of computer code that begins to Cure the whole virus. That's what we're meant to be. Salt and light is the way Jesus put it. We operate far too often by power. We get intoxicated by that. We fall for what the world thinks is what power really means when we realize that we really have none of it in ourselves. Only God, only God is the truly powerful one. And any power comes from him. This is the kind of king Jesus is. This is the kind of kingdom he's establishing through his people. And Peter says the same thing. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Is this easy? No. Not for me. Maybe it's not easy for you too. But it's right. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, Peter says. And he will grant you his blessing. How does that happen? Sounds good, right? How does that happen? Well, 
If I'm right before God, and that's my primary aim, don't always get that correct by, by any stretch, not ever 100%. But if, if my main aim is to, not, is to be right before God, I no longer need to be declared right before others. I can stand to be misunderstood as long as I'm standing by my convictions. Now, that doesn't mean stubbornly in an unteachable way. That just means my no, my aim. Regard, I love all people, but their opinions don't even come close to what God's opinion of me matters, how, how much that matters to me. So you begin to set the scale a little differently. Remain humble, and yet also know that your main aim is not pleasing everyone. It's pleasing God. And also, we begin to see things differently. We see more. Our world and our view of it uh, don't become only about our injury and the one who injured us. It doesn't get shrunk to that level. We see God. He's in and around all things. We see ourselves as His beloved children. We see the one who has done us wrong as more than just our injurer, but also as one known and loved by God, whether they know it yet or not. And we see those others who harm, who disparage, who get in our way, who hurt us in any fashion. We see them as human beings, image bearers of God, full of their own insecurities and traumas, their own limitations and besetting sins, much like us. Amen? How does this happen, I asked? Well, not on your own. Of that we can be sure. Not on my own either. We need God's help with that. Thankfully, He's ready to do exactly that. Help us with it. Never pay back evil with more evil. The Christian would rather suffer evil than do it. Paul goes on. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. This takes me back to, I don't think it's on the screen here, but this takes me back to Jesus' statement in Matthew 5 where he says, You're the, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Just let that light shine because count on it, your life is seen. People are paying attention to you, how you act and react to anything you might be going through. And so just do things in such a way that people can see you're honorable. Your priorities are set. Seek my kingdom first, Jesus says, and all those other things will be added unto you. Verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Let's think about that for just a second. If we're honest and it didn't feel so disrespectful, we'd say that that almost seems laughable in our world today. Peace is hard to come by these days. But let's remember the first part. Do all you can. There's much that you can't, but there's also much that we can do to live peaceably with other people. And Paul says, do all that you can of that. Now, we're not talking about courtesy that then uh, lays aside principle. We're not talking about niceness that replaces justice. We're not talking about anything like that. But what we are talking about is something we're all really familiar with. Don't antagonize other people. There's a way to speak truth in love where you have the interests of the other person, no matter how they're treating you. You have their interests at heart, ultimately. And then there's a way to speak truth 
that just wants to enjoy the reaction of the other person and how much it's going to get under their skin. Am I the only one that's ever experienced that, right? And we know the difference, and God knows the difference. Do not antagonize, in other words. Don't pick a fight, but also don't shirk from a necessary one either. Because believe me, no New Testament writer believed life with Jesus is supposed to be free from conflict, and that that means we're doing it right. That somehow, if my life is free from conflict with other humans, I must be a good Christian and doing it exactly right. Many of these letters were written from jail. Civil disobedience, open hostility, internal conflict. They were constants in the lives of these Jesus followers. Why? Because faith inevitably brings friction. Honesty can sometimes uh, elicit um, uh, hostility. Speaking the truth can sometimes get a torrid reaction. But what's most important is that we do what we can to live peaceably with others. That we're not the ones trying to pick a fight. We also don't shirk from one either. He goes on to just keep fleshing out this concept. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. He's quoting from way back in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Anyone here enjoy revenge and payback movies? You know, movies where the central theme is someone getting revenge on someone else. Am I the only one? I feel so alone today. I think I'm the only one that, that has trouble with all of these things. I love those movies. I'll be honest. There's a whole genre of movies. I mean, they're just fun to watch. Someone who's, man, they're exacting their own justice, taking it into their own hands, making people who've, who've made others suffer, making them suffer. It's fun to watch. Maybe it's a whole fantasy fulfillment thing for me. I don't know. Like, you know, you can't do that as a pastor. So maybe you, you can just watch other people do that. So we know in our own human nature, I mean, there's a whole industry that wants to crank out stories about revenge and payback. But what we're reading here, in fact, we've read twice already the phrase, don't pay back, wrong for wrong or evil for evil. We are being called to operate on a whole other level. And friends, this is big. And what Paul is laying out here gives us the kind of the way to do it or the perspective to have. What is my job and what is God's job? Because we're being told here, leave that. It is mine. Don't take it on yourself. Usually we take too much on ourselves. I'm going to throw three questions up here that I have personally found to be super helpful when it comes to moments like what we're talking about here, relationships or conflicts or you name it, whatever. First question, what am I taking on? What am I making my own? What, what great injustice am I thinking I'm going to be able to single-handedly set right? What, what, what thing that's wrong that I, I think with enough words or enough whatever, I'm going to be able to put it right? What am I taking on myself that perhaps that's a knot too big for me to untie? can pray about it, can love people, but I'm not going to be able to fix that. Certainly not all by myself. But how am I acting as if I can or should? What am I taking on? It's a good question to ask because many times I find that the answer is God dropping into my heart, hey, some of that, you just need to leave that to me. Give me room and time to do my work. 
What am I taking on? And then secondly, chances are really good in this kind of moment. Who am I judging? Who have I decided is wrong in contrast to, well, let's face it, just how right I really am, right? You know, who am I judging? Who have I declared incompetent or whatever? Uh, and I've just decided that if only they were more like me, the world would be a better place. Who am I judging? Because that's never good. And thirdly, this is a big one, where am I wrong? If on any issue I have the sense that I am 100% right, now I'm not talking about Jesus is Lord, that conviction, that truth. I'm not talking about God is good. I'm talking about the issues that in our day-to-day relationships uh, and in our society today will get between us and cause conflict. If on any of those issues... I have the sense, I am 100% correct. What are the odds that you're 100% correct about that? Right? That instead, if I can, before the Lord, just say, Lord, mm, where am I wrong on this? There may be lots of areas where you're completely right on this. You got it nailed. You are. You're dead on. You're good. But are you teachable enough? Am I humble enough to realize, but there's probably something here I either don't know or can't quite see yet. What am I missing that I need? Can my brother or sister, can God teach me something on this? Where, God, am I wrong right now? I'm just not getting it right. Don't see it just yet, but show it to me. Man, these are powerful questions. If we can stop and just check ourselves before we Okay, that's good. I, I love you as a church that you could fill that, that sentence in. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because often we charge forward, often in anger, when we need to leave room for God to work. Because why? His anger is always righteous. What the Bible calls His anger is always a perfect and dead-on combination of the grace and the justice that are needed of the of of knowing what's wrong, but also the wisdom to know how to empower to make it right. God is always perfect at that. I never am. So my supply of anger that I walk around with is always full and tainted with all my own humanness. It can't be trusted. Even if my cause is just, my anger is tainted. And I need to trust the God who sees all sees all the injustice done to me or done in the world, and I have to accept the fact that that God loves to forgive. And that's its own justice when Jesus is in the mix. And ultimately, I'm grateful for it. Amen? So verse 20, let's keep moving here. Paul says, instead, everyone say instead. Instead... If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Now, that sounds rough. But the idea is to create a contrast between wrongdoing and love. The contrast will speak volumes. Kindness will bring conviction through the Lord. They might even, as the image puts it, burn with some regret for how they treated you that you didn't add evil to evil, but instead you added kindness or compassion or love. They, they have the chance now to uh, repent, thanks to you breaking the cycle 
of revenge. Now, another thing this image lays out that's quoting from back in the Old Testament book of Proverbs is you can picture like there's an altar, right, in the temple, and that's where sacrifices were made, and the coals there were kept burning. And the idea that the coals of the altar, where, where repentance happens, where people come before God, you're kind of making their head an altar. The, some scholars think, think that this uh, little um, phrase means that now the person can be ripe for conviction and repentance because you have not just added to the problem, but instead you've created space for them to turn to God. A God who will set all things right ultimately. Back to Matthew 5 for a second. Now let's bring Jesus' words in here. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Turn an enemy into a friend and turn yourself more and more into a child of God, who is himself love. Do what's kind Do what's needed. If someone's hungry or thirsty, give them what they need. And Jesus adds, pray for them. I was meeting with an outlooker just last week who was reflecting on the advice that he had at one point been given. Someone in his life has been for quite some time treating him very poorly, very wrongly, unjustly. And when he got the advice, pray for them. Man, your whole perspective on someone changes when you talk to the Lord about them. It just does. Praying for them is powerful advice. Finally, the passage ends, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Bible uh, is honest about the reality of evil. Now, we need to be uh, not too quick to let what, and thought, we need to be thoughtful about what we label as evil, and certainly we don't label people as evil. We, people may do evil things, but we don't want to get sucked too far into that idea of just labeling everything that we disagree with evil. But we do know about joy versus despair, the light and the good in us versus the darkness and the badness in us, about justice versus oppression and apathy. We know life without God, life lived away from God and against God even, can rightly be called evil. It brings evil into our lives and the world. In Romans 16, just a little bit later here, as Paul's wrapping up his letter, he says something about this that I want to highlight. He says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. In this passage, Paul gives evil a name, Satan. It's not your name, it's not my name, it's not any other human's name. He understands where evil ultimately comes from. And instead, he focuses us on the fact that we have victory over that evil, that we have power, we're overcoming evil with good. And so our better question is, how, where and how can I do the greatest good in the world? That the best way to fight evil, so to speak, something we love to talk about, fighting evil, is to do good. In fact, even in chapter 13 here, as Paul were to go on, uh, he talks about how civil government, when it's operating as it should, is a great tool for fighting evil, a tool for God's justice. That's why working to see that our systems of law and justice are right and true is a high and holy work, advocating for the oppressed, holding officials accountable, using our voice, standing by our convictions, showing our love. There is a lot of good 
that we can do. And there's a lot of, a lot of things that are right and good in our world. And there's a lot that requires serious, loving attention as well. The church should be the conscience of society. The place that people are overcoming evil with good. Opportunities to exert this kind of overcoming goodness are endless. But we have to make sure that we don't get so distracted by what the world is doing and making sure everyone knows how much we disapprove that we have little mental or emotional bandwidth left to do what is actually right and good, something proactive and difference-making, or else we're not overcoming anything. Paul says overcome evil with good. So we don't accept the world's invitation to spit and curse and divide and conquer. Why? We just have too much good to do. Just that simple. Now, some, no doubt, will think I'm simple-minded on that. I don't disagree. But making it complicated is what's killing us and our witness. If we're not careful and prayerful about these things, we'll gain the world and lose our souls. Overcome evil. It's really simple. With good. I want to close in prayer this morning in a special way. Speaking of overcoming evil with good. Speaking of doing good that overcomes the world, that does and makes a great difference in the world. Our next school year is about to begin. And so if you are an educator this morning, you serve on the staff or faculty in any capacity in any of our local schools, preschool, kindergarten, elementary, middle school, high school, you name it. If you are on the staff or faculty of any school, I would love for you to stand. We want to pray for you as people who are out there doing such tremendous good. So if you would stand, we have a small gift for you. People will be coming around and giving it to you as you uh, are standing. Uh, it's a tangible reminder that we're praying for you this school year, that you have our wholehearted support. And so while those gifts are, are, are being handed out, I would invite all of us um, to join me. I want to end this morning with this time in our... Uh, time in the Word, with praying for our staff and educators at our local schools and all that they mean to us as they begin this school year. So can we pray together? Let's do it. Father, we thank you for the men and women who are standing here today. We're frankly proud of them, proud uh, that, that members of our church family are, are out there in this world making such a tremendous difference in the lives of our children. We ask, God, that you would protect them from any schemes of the evil one. That In all the difficulties, and these jobs are tough, they're demanding, they draw a lot from these men and women. We ask, God, that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would then gird them up, that you would empower them by your Holy Spirit to do the work that you've set before them, that they would put their hand to those plows and that they would keep their eye on you and that you'd give them supernatural strength and endurance and peace to do that important work. And we ask God that you'd guide them, give them wisdom as they encounter all the just innumerable challenges that they face. And God, we pray that they would know just down to their toes that you're with them that their church family is with them and loves them. And so, Lord, we put this whole school year uh, in front of you. You see every bit of it already. And we ask, God, that you would empower these men and women to move into it by the, just the might and the goodness, the overcoming goodness of your Spirit. 
And we pray for our kids, Lord, our, our students, that you would be with them, protect them as well, guide them as well, use them as well as salt and light to their classmates. Lord, that's really our prayer for all of us. We want to be the kind of people that you can use, put to good use in this world. Thank you for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.